Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. My guest today is an experienced lawyer who mainly works in criminal law and civil litigation. Leighton Gray was contracted by the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms in the civil claim against the Alberta government, specifically the chief medical officer of health, regarding COVID restrictions imposed during the first three waves of the pandemic. He joins me today to discuss the case, legislation that offends the Charter and Constitution, censorship, and so much more. Thanks for joining me today, Leighton. Thanks for having me on. Now, you right now are involved in a case uh, where you were questioning, was it Dina Henshaw? And I'm noticing different reports out there about it. Is that correct? That is correct. The, um, is this case going to set a precedent? Uh, potentially, it could. Um, it, it already has set a precedent in that this is the first time that any chief medical officer of health has been subjected to this type of questioning. So it's precedent setting already in that context. It could be precedent sending legally if it turns out that our cause is successful, that being a declaration from the court that some of the chief medical officer of health orders, which restricted certain charter freedoms during the, the thrust of the pandemic, the first, second and third waves uh, during 2020 and 2021, if we get a declaration from the court that those, in fact, not only violate the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but that those violations cannot be saved under Section 1 of Charter. So maybe fill everybody in who doesn't know. So what is this court case? Uh, tell us a little bit about it to give people the background who are kind of going, okay, what are we talking about here? Sure. Well, it is, a, it is a civil case as opposed to a public inquiry. It's been brought by... Um, uh, certain litigants. Um, I'm, I've been hired by the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms to represent uh, mainly two churches who have um, who are alleging violation of the freedom of religion. Um, and there are various orders that were made by the Alberta government which offended freedom of religion. Uh, one obvious example would be restriction upon uh, capacity at churches. That's one example. There's also another litigant named Rebecca Ingram. She's represented by uh, Jeffrey Rath, and uh, she is a, a fitness gym owner, and uh, she is alleged violation of certain other uh, charter protections, including Section 7 of the Charter, which guarantees life, liberty, and security of the person. And, uh, and so these litigants have brought a, a civil claim against the Alberta government alleging violation of, of their rights under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And under Section 52, Sub 1 of the Canadian Constitution, the court has the ability to strike down any government order or legislation which offends the Charter. The, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is the supreme law of the land. It's, it's enshrined in the Canadian Constitution. And so where governments create laws which offend the the charter, there's a the rule of supremacy is is enshrined in the Canadian Constitution, such that the court can strike down these laws as unconstitutional, um, and this is very significant because, of course, even though across many parts of Canada um, these these restrictions are not in place, 
the mechanisms by which these uh, these measures were brought into place remain. The vestiges of, of them are there and the government can use them at any time. Uh, in Alberta's case, these are uh, emergency powers that are part of the Public Health Act. And under the Public Health Act, and this is somewhat horrifying, I don't think many people realize this, the Public Health Act of Alberta effectively makes Dina Hinshaw the most powerful person in the history of Alberta. It, it vests in her uh, the ability to use any means necessary, that's any means necessary to fight the pandemic. And during the course of uh, about two years, she did. And so the thrust of the court case is to prevent this from ever happening again, to remove from government the power to do this uh, to society. And so what it, what it really centers upon, what it turns upon is this question. Do the, uh, do the harms, the now which are known and measurable, the harms caused by lockdowns, which are also called non-pharmaceutical interventions, so things like restrictions upon business, restrictions upon worship, restrictions upon public gathering, masking, social distancing, closing of schools. Um, do the harms of those things outweigh in the balance any good that was done by the, the lockdowns in terms of, of preventing uh, the, the transmission or the spread of the virus or preventing death. Now, there is very, very persuasive evidence that, um, that these measures do absolutely nothing. In fact, um, in January, there was a Johns Hopkins study that was released in the United States from one of the most eminent uh, medical schools in the world, stating that the, the sum impact of lockdown measures worldwide upon reduction of death and COVID cases was about 0.2%. 0.2%. So when you can 0.2%. And in Alberta, just taking Alberta, for example, it's measurable that uh, seven times as many people were killed by lockdown measures than, than by COVID itself. Really? So, yes. So, so the crux of the case, and this is, and this is really the, the difficult thing for, for, uh, for us in terms of the court case, is that the government is saying that they did all these things um, and that they worked and that they saved lives. And of course, they are required to prove that. Mm. But unfortunately, based upon right. the way the case has been going, we, myself and Mr. Rath, had the impression that in fact, we may be in the position where we have to prove a negative, that we have to prove that they did not work. And, uh, you know, and this is, this is difficult to comprehend in the context of um, what is known and what is measurable. In other words, the, the harms done by lockdowns are known and they are measurable. They can be measured uh, in terms of epidemiology, in terms of virology, in terms of death counts, and also in terms of uh, economic harms. So the Johns Hopkins study that I referred to uh, actually is a, what's called a meta-analysis. So what it did is it took 34 different studies and uh, compiled the data from all of those 34 different studies and, uh, and determined quite conclusively that um, these, these lockdowns are perhaps the greatest error in modern history in terms of uh, public policy. You're telling me that you're coming, um, you guys are coming against uh, 
them with a civil suit saying what you did did not uh, work and they're not defending themselves on it. Is that, can you, can you explain that a little bit deeper? Like, cause I don't know if the average person yes. gets this. What well, should happen yeah. normally here? Well, the, I'll put it to you this way. When I cross-examined, I cross-examined Dr. Hinshaw for three days and I got her to acknowledge several times, not only that the government had violated uh, protected rights and freedoms of Canadians. She acknowledged that. She also acknowledged that that caused harm. But the way that she justified it was that it was done for the greater good. She even acknowledged that in terms of a hierarchy of values, and I put it to her this way specifically, that the government valued, uh, put, put um, the public health system, not necessarily the lives of human beings, but the public health system, protection of an institution above individual uh, liberty. And so, uh, you know, what is really shocking about this is, uh, is the callousness of it. Is that where they were saying, um, you know, we want you to do all these things because we're going to make our uh, intensive cares full? Is that what you're referring to? That's it. And, and of course, um, that, that, is all, that is all an allegation that's based upon modeling. The truth is that the Alberta healthcare system was never overrun. And in fact, there isn't even any evidence that it was ever in danger of being overrun. Um, here's some hard numbers. At the very height of the pandemic, so during the whole period during which Alberta was locked down, the highest level of infection was on May 3rd, 2021, when there was only a 13% infection rate. Okay, that means that 87% of 4.4 million people were not even infected with the virus. So even if you take that 13%, only about 4% of those, of that 13%, were ever in danger of suffering serious health outcomes. 4% um, of the 13%. Of, of the 13%. Which now, is really low. The average rate, oh, it is. And, and, and the average rate of infection, now remember, 13%, that was the high watermark. Throughout most of the time that we were locked down, the infection rate uh, was between 1% and 7%. Uh, on average. Okay, so at any given time, between 93 and 99% of Albertans were not even infected. And, the, and, and of course, you build into that, there were many of those. Uh, in fact, the majority of those were what's, what's called asymptomatic, which means they had no symptoms, uh, which begs the question, well, I mean, human beings, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I've spent a lot of time studying epidemiology <laughs> I'll bet. a couple of years. Yeah, I'll bet. And they tell me basically, um, the, the whole basis of epidemiology is, uh, you know, is, is sort of asking the question, well, human beings are walking around at any, at any given time uh, dealing with a whole number of different viruses and ailments. But the fact is our, our, our immune systems are working constantly like an army fighting off all this stuff. And so it really begs the question, if we're not sick, why are we worried about a virus that doesn't make us sick, let alone has an infinitesimal risk of, uh, of serious, health, uh, serious health outcomes or, or, or death. One more, just one more thing that's really important that, that came out during the trial that a lot of people uh, perhaps don't realize. We had a very eminent expert named Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who's a professor of medicine at Stanford. And um, he's not only an epidemiologist and a medical doctor, he's also an economist. 
So if you were going to design a person uh, who could understand not only the, the scientific variations of COVID-19, but also the economic impacts, this would be the guy. And he said two things. Number one, firstly, uh, poor people always suffer the worst health com- outcomes in society. And this is something that most of us realize. What we don't realize and what the government seemed to ignore is that um, those health outcomes for the poor, for the most vulnerable, are actually exacerbated by lockdowns. And uh, Dr. Bhattacharya calls this trickle-down epidemiology. So for poor people, the most uh, the people who, who are most at risk in our society, um, when you impose lockdown measures, it's a double whammy. It's doubling down on them. They suffer even further from economic impacts. And, and so this whole idea that lockdowns are designed to protect society and protect our most vulnerable uh, really doesn't pass muster upon when it's uh, put up to, the, to, to, to cold scrutiny. Even if you look at, like I'm hearing experts you know, around the planet saying the testing is absolutely flawed. Um, is that something you can speak to? Have you read some of the same data or? Oh, we, oh yes. That's, a, that's one of the core issues in the case. In fact, um, uh, this is interesting because in Canada, we've had uh, different cases, sort of sister cases work their way through the courts in British Columbia, Manitoba, and now Alberta. Last year, about a year ago in May of 2021, a sister case in Manitoba went through and they had a very eminent um, PCR uh, expert in Manitoba named Dr. Bullard. And uh, he gave testimony in that hearing that was somewhat astonishing to the government. It wasn't very favorable. And so he was not brought out again in the Alberta case. But his evidence suggested very strongly, it didn't su- suggest, he, he, he presented these as scientific findings, that the PCR testing can be wrong uh, up to 56% of the time, even under, under optimal conditions. And when I cross-examined the Alberta expert, uh, Dr. Zaleas, uh, was a very frank, very sincere witness. Um, he, uh, he admitted that um, based upon the number of cycles that these tests were being run at, that uh, they could be wrong almost all the time. Wow. Uh, and so this is why you hear that this isn't just uh, an urban myth that you can get you can get a, a positive COVID test from Coca-Cola. Um, this, is a, this actually occurs. In fact, the person who invented the PCR test has come out publicly stated that it was never designed to test for the presence of virus. See, that's, yeah. They're, they're making them prove all this is where you want to be, correct, yes. in these court cases? Yes. And so they're putting it yes. back on you, you were saying? To prove what? Well, this is, yeah, well, this is the interesting part of it is um, the government's response. When we say to them, uh, they admit uh, that the lockdowns caused harm. They admit that they restricted and infringed individual liberties. But then the way that they explain that is they say, well, this there was a balancing that had to occur, right? Um and, and so um, if you're familiar with, uh, with, the, with the sort of uh, dilemma of the, of the trolley, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there's, this is a, there's an old um, ethical that's, that's taught to, to philosophy students. If you imagine a, a trolley car, and a trolley car is, is coming to the crest of a hill, and then, and then there's two tracks, 
and 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 you can divert the you can divert the train down one path where there are many people on in the way of the of the of the train and then you look to the right and you see there are a few people on the train and the dilemma of the trolley track is one that comes up often in terms of public policy and and so there there is no it isn't it isn't a true dilemma because you always have to choose the path that is going to cause the least amount of harm that's your duty mm-hmm. but actually what occurred under lockdown policies is um is is they they chose the path that would take out and harm the vast majority of people in order to save the few and of course um you know the truth about it is um it never works i mean the 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 the, the people who are going to be harmed um there they're all they're always going to be a certain number of people who are going to suffer and and die sadly from a, a situation such as covid but what what public policy uh, makers are supposed to do uh, if they're leading us properly is to calculate uh, these decisions and make the ones that um, do the least harm and do the most good. And so coming back to the Alberta situation, their justification is, well, we had to protect the few. And so therefore it was okay to hurt the many. It was okay to hurt the many to save the few. And so that's how they, they decided the dilemma of the of the trolley track and that puts us in a position where essentially we have to prove that what they did didn't work now legally the owner should be on them to prove that the lockdown measures worked um and they're saying that they can do it but this is what they say uh so (laughs) when you go look um of course um you know i'm not a medical doctor but from, from what i've learned and perhaps this is somewhat rational for people to, to think in this way, is that a virus moves just the, the way just about everything else does on planet Earth, it moves in cycles. And so there are times when the cases tick up and there's times when they go down. What it appears to us, what happened, was that at times when the government could see that the cases were going to start to, to go up, uh, what they would do is they would ease off of restrictions. And then what they would do is as they as the cases would go up and they would crest, then they would they would impose restrictions around the time when it looked like the virus is going to peak. And then, of course, the virus would go through its, its normal cycle and it would come down. And then, of course, the government would come out and give a press conference and say, well, look, you see, it all worked. But really, it's just a situation of timing. Wow. And I put this to the chief medical officer wow. of health under cross-examination. I have to say that um, her her um, her answer to it was not overwhelmingly persuasive. You know what you're saying is interesting. I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, in my early years, I was trained as a paramedic, and so in the seven years that I was working with that, we I would supervise the scene of an accident. So we our job was to maximize survivors. Triage tags would be in the vehicle, black, red, green, um, amber. And my job was to tag every patient, not touch them. And as the different units would come up, people would be alive. But if I tagged them black, nobody was to touch them. You were to let them die. They taught me that. Because Mm -hmm. 
There was no way to save them as opposed to the others. They would go to the Reds first. They had, you know, you had minutes to save the Reds' lives. They go to the Amber next because we had about an hour. So that might be spinal fracture, you know, major. I forget all the training now. Uh, but they taught us to maximize survivors. And we knew going in, we were choosing. Our job was to choose who we didn't touch. And we had a, a very definitive way to do it. So for them to go, you know, we're going to hurt everybody else to look after the person who's the most likely to be hurt by this is really ridiculous to me. It is, and it goes against uh, the, the rationalization of resources and healthcare that you just spoke about. What you just described is a rational approach to preserving life. And that would make perfect sense to the vast majority of people. The problem is uh, when you go and you look deeper at what's going on in, within the Alberta healthcare system, and I spent some time questioning Dr. Hinch about this, when you go look at the underlying policy behind the operation of the, of the Alberta healthcare system, you begin to find some of the underpinnings and the answers. Uh, and so I went through with her the underlying policy, which talks about basically socialism applied to healthcare. The underlying policy of Alberta Health talks about things like social justice and health equity. So if we apply social justice and health equity to the situation that you just described, where you're in an emergent situation trying to save life, many people in that situation are going to die. Because if you come into the situation you just described and you treated every single person in that, on that accident scene exactly the same, Many more people are going to die yep. than if you rationalized your resources and you made hard decisions in the moment to try and maximize the preservation of life. And the thing is, underpinning the government's decisions are, are not these basic, these basic concepts of rationalizing resources and producing the greatest good. That's the problem. So where did, okay, so you're, you're talking to Dr. Dina Henshaw. So... Nobody's an expert on everything, including a doctor. Um, or a lawyer. <laughs> or a lawyer. So, but common sense doesn't seem to be so common anymore. But, so then where did she get the help from to make these incredibly powerful decisions about people's livelihoods, death, living, finances, mm -hmm. um, not seeing somebody for months, except like, where does she get the knowledge for this? And does she actually realize the buck stops with her or no? Well, this is a fascinating feature of the case. Um, so on one, on one level, for example, I asked her when we were talking about lockdown harms, I asked her whether she had an economist on her staff giving her advice. And uh, she said, no, she said that, um, that she's not an economist. By the way, she's not an economist. She's not a social scientist. She doesn't have a background in a lot of different things, even though her, her orders impacted just about every aspect of people's lives. But she didn't have an economist on staff. She said that, well, from time to time, we would consult other ministries and experts. But, you know, the more shocking thing was this. These orders, when you look at them, they look like royal decrees. They, the wording is, I, Dina Hinshaw, hereby order. And then it goes through the restrictions. She's, when she was asked about this, whether these were, in fact, her orders, she said, uh, she deflected that. And she said, well, actually, um, I'm not an elected person. 
And so they weren't really my orders. Um, they were the orders of government. And I only provided them with advice and input. And ultimately, they made the decisions. And then we just put them into the, the formal orders. So even though the orders were hers uh, in, in, let's say, in wording, she's, she's passing off the responsibility for them onto the government. And um, I, I thought uh, it, that a very curious uh, approach. And I also wondered what uh, Premier Kenny and co thought of that, especially in the context of uh, Dr. Verna Yu, who is the head of Alberta Health Services, was fired on the first day of our trial, uh, which again was, uh, was rather uh, interesting timing. And so, you know, I just wonder how long Dina Hinche is going to be our chief medical officer of health, especially when she's claiming that uh, these decisions were not hers, but actually were the decisions of, uh, of Premier Kenny and his cabinet. So she's acting as though she's, in, she's talking as though she's just an advisor is kind of what she's saying. So what is, what's the specific group that then she says makes the decision in government? That would be, that would be the Premier and, and his cabinet. So the, their, their cabinet ministers, which would include people like the Minister of Health, uh, you know, people who are making decisions about uh, Ministry of Tourism, economic, uh, the, those people. Uh, but primarily, the, it, the, you know, the buck stops with Premier Kenny. And uh, she's essentially saying that her orders are an expression of the will, the political will of the elected leaders and not her. But, you know, the problem is that doesn't align very well with what we actually saw, because during the course of the pandemic, uh, she gave over 400 press conferences. She, ga she gave them. In fact, uh, I went through transcripts of all of them, and I cross-examined her about what she said in many of them. And in none of those press conferences was she indicating that uh, these orders were simply where she was just expressing the will of the government. Uh, she was speaking one-to-one, -one, very personally, to Albertans saying you can't do this you can't do that you should do this you should do that and uh, let's all be alone together and uh, this is especially you know the new normal the new normal being you know forget your rights don't question us uh in fact don't even look at other sources of information on the internet or social media which conflict with what the government is telling you about COVID 19. she was cross-examined about this too so the government uh, not only uh, controlled or attempted to control our behavior uh, under threat of criminal sanction, they also tried very hard to control the flow of ideas, to, to restrict the, you know, the flow of, of information about, about science, um, which, which gets at the whole concept of, you know, are we a free society, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and freedom of thought. You know, mm. these are all things that, that have been fundamental to Canadians from time immemorial. And, uh, and so it's very hard to look at the COVID-19 situation and looking what the government did and, and not, not draw a conclusion that at least on some level, perhaps on a primary level, that this was an exercise in social and political engineering to change the structure of our society, the way that we see our relationship with government. Wow. Um, and so, and so, when you look really deep into, uh, when you take a deep dive into this, as I have, I've been living, I've had this <laughs> under my skin for uh, about two years now. Um, 
you know, it's it's very hard to look at what the government did and not think in terms of um, that this was an orchestrated an orchestrated attempt to change the way Albertans think uh, and the way they live and the way we see each other. The premiers have a lot of power. Um, I mean, and, and the reason I like talking to you is for what you just said, and that is that it's hard to find anybody who's an expert across the board. It's so linear, and you got to bring all these people into the room. But now you have had to crunch and read and listen across these, and you've got to be able to know it well enough to you know regurgitate it in the courtroom. So was there pressure coming from the federal government on these premiers as well in, in the things they were doing? Or That's a great question. Uh, I think uh, particularly in terms of the, if you take, for example, the, the vaccines, I think there has been intense pressure. I think the vaccine mandates in particular, uh, the pressure in relation to that is coming directly from the prime minister's office. I think that's pretty obvious because uh, every province in Canada now is turned away from vaccine mandates and the federal government is still pushing them. It is still, and this is a, it pains me to say this and people are shocked when they hear this. Uh, it is still impossible for a Canadian to get onto an airplane, a train or a ship uh, in this country unless they are vaccinated. Um, that's <laughs> that's fundamentally uh, horrifying, um, mm -hmm. but it's but it's true. Um, the The pressure to answer your question, though, is the, the the pressure on the provinces is this: Canada is a federal uh, is a federal system. It's a it's a federal system, much like the United States, and and also like in the United States, um, the the federal government and the provinces uh, have certain powers that are set out areas of authority or jurisdiction that are set out in the constitution. Health is one area over which the provinces have exclusive legal jurisdiction. So on one level, it's very odd that the federal government has a minister of health, a particular minister of health who by trade is a graphic designer, uh, which was true for much of the pandemic. Whoa, whoa, but I, in I, any I case, didn't know that. Missed that. I missed that. Okay. Patty <laughs> Hayden, our health minister federally. Yes, Patty Hayden was a graphic designer by trade. I do. I, if you can explain to me the relationship between graphic design, nothing against graphic designers. No. Uh, but if you can explain to me the relationship between graphic design and and health, uh, you're a better man than me. But but the but the point is the reason why. Or, or the way that the federal government is able to control and put pressure on the provinces over health is through is through the power of taxation. So the federal government uh, taxes Canadians quite heavily. And in doing that, what they do is they draw money, let's say, from the proverbial well. So money that would otherwise go into communities locally uh, to solve problems like health um, goes, goes to Ottawa. And so Ottawa has that money. Now, every single uh, province in Canada, understandably, is cash-strapped to deal with health. Health is very expensive to provide. I've, I think in large degree, if you look at it honestly, that has to do with um, the way that health systems are organized and delivered. I think there's a lot of waste. There's a lot of bureaucracy that I think there's money wasted within healthcare, but that's a, that's a different conversation. But the point is this, 
Ottawa has the money. And so the provinces have to go hat in hand to the federal government for money to pay for health care. And so that is precisely how the federal government exerts control, practical political control over health care. That's our next issue. That, that's probably our next huge issue is going to be the environment and the green stuff, isn't it? Oh, it is. And, and you know, um, there's even less credible science to support environmental hysteria than there is to, to support the idea that COVID-19 uh, was, a, was a serious health risk to most Canadians. Now, I'm not demonking that COVID-19 is, is, is real. Of course it is. But the reality is, based upon the hard medical data, uh, the, the, the only people who are at serious risk of uh, serious health consequences, such as hospitalization, ICU, or death, were persons over the age of 70 with multiple comorbidities, a comorbidity being some other medical condition which poses a serious risk of, of health concerns or death. And so that's a very small percentage of the population. And when Dr. Bhattacharya testified about this, um, it's important to note that um, what the Alberta government did uh, actually did less to help those most vulnerable people. I think we can all agree that in our society, we want to provide resources. We want to devote our resources to the people who are most vulnerable. The situation that you described when you were a paramedic, that's exactly what you were doing, right? And that's how you maximize the best health outcomes for the, for the greatest number of people. Well, the Alberta government, by, by treating everybody the same regarding COVID, actually, by, by failing to provide or focus resources on the most vulnerable, actually caused many of those elderly people that I described to die, many more than would have died if we had focused our, our, uh, our health resources on the most vulnerable, as was done in places such as Florida. Yeah, Leighton, so when you look at all, all the stuff you've read and the things that you are dealing with uh, in the court system, um, there's a lot of areas that were hidden from the public. Is there anything you've come across that has seen that? Because one of the greatest uh, issues we're dealing with right now is that in healthcare, we would talk to a doctor, we would do, you know, we would work together. He would say, I don't know much about that. Let's get you to a specialist. Most people would grab their computers and check out Germany specialists, Swiss specialists, what's happening, in, and, and they become experts on their disease. They become really good. Then they can talk to the doctors intelligently, the specialists intelligently. But here, we seem to have a complete lack of the full truth being shared with us to make our own decisions. Well, first of all, we, don't, we didn't get a chance to make our own decisions, but did, did you see that where, where they're not being forthcoming in, in the whole truth? That is a very astute observation. In fact, um... I, I, I actually have uh, my own uh, podcast and I had Dr. Jay Bhattacharya uh, on and we talked about freedom of speech within science. And, and I'll give you an example, which I think really illustrates what you were just saying. So Dr. Bhattacharya is one of three very renowned scientists who created something called the Great Barrington Declaration. You've probably heard about, mm -hmm. but surprisingly, many people don't know about the Great Barrington no. Declaration. The, the Great Barrington Declaration was fashioned by three scientists 
you know, from such obscure universities as Stanford and Harvard and Oxford. Okay, so uh, Dr. Kuldorf is from is from Harvard. Dr. Gupta from Oxford and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, all three, like off the charts, brilliant, world-renowned scientists. And in October of 2020, they created something called the Great Barrington Declaration, which basically said that COVID-19 is, yes, it's a virus, it's real. However, um, it does not justify these, these lockdown measures. And that the best way to deal with it is to rationalize resources so that we focus them on the people who are most vulnerable, who were identified in the Great Barrington Declaration, as I described just, just a few moments ago. Well, Dr. Fauci's reaction to the Great Barrington Declaration was to send a series of emails which resulted in the discrediting of these eminent scientists. And uh, they were called fringe epidemiologists, okay? So these very eminent scientists. So uh, there were a whole number of, uh, of uh, very fascinating, informative uh, materials that were on uh, platforms like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and so on that were all deplatformed, that were censored, completely censored. Um, and of course, when I asked Dr. Bhattacharya about this, and this maybe gets more at the at your question. Um, he lamented this greatly because he described science as sort of this great conversation across time, where science as a as a function of freedom of speech, where we come up with the best ideas. And this is the great the greatest thing about having a, a liberal society where we have a free flow of ideas. And the West proves this, right? Where you know, strongest steel is forged and hottest fire. This is how we come up with the best ideas it's because we can talk about them. We can test them. And this is what the scientific method is all about. And so what has happened through COVID is we've had this suppression, this censoring of ideas so that people can't even think about them. They can't even consider them. And in the context of the, of the litigation that I'm talking about, Dr. Hinshaw spoke repeatedly about uh, people being careful about not looking at the wrong websites. And she gave people labels like naysayers and uh, conspiracy theorists and misinformants and so on. Um, th this is, this is uh, first of all, it's, it's an infantilization of the public. Um, I think, I happen to think that uh, people are a lot smarter than the government thinks they are. Yep. And, and, and the best way, the way we've always done things in the West I, I think which is what has made the West different, an exception to the rule, is that we have allowed this free flow of, of ideas. We've given people the freedom to make their own choices. And uh, I actually put this question specifically to Dr. Hinshaw. I said to her, well, she says there was no other way. And I said, yes, there was. What you could have done is you could have given the public all of the relevant information Yes. The best information, and then and said to them, look, now make your best decisions. You said that. To make her? your best choices. I said that to her, and she said that that was too that that was too dangerous. That we couldn't trust the public basically to 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 do that because and again, it's an infantilization. It's treating uh, the public as as children. Yep. Uh, who have to be have to be controlled. 
but there was another way and and in other places uh, uh even though if you take for example sweden is another example where where lockdowns were not prevalent they were not the go to move as it were and um even though they suffered loss of life from covid because uh sweden actually has on balance a an older population than canada or the united states so they suffered more death mm-hmm. um based upon a recent study the interesting thing about sweden is they have almost no uh post covid harm they don't have any of the residual lockdown harms that we are just beginning to feel i uh, there's no question that in the west in canada, places like canada united states and australia new zealand we are going to have generational harm yeah. from these covid restrictions yeah well, i hear you talk i'm thinking they don't want to share the information with everybody because we might get a panic well if they shared it at the beginning and there was a panic people might stop going to work stay at home, wear a mask, avoid one another, not travel. What else could they do if they panicked? Well, it didn't matter because that's exactly what they mm-hmm. did anyway to us. Mm-hmm. So it, yes. if it is shared information with everybody, the discussions that would go on in everybody's circle of friends are great nurses, RNs, mm-hmm. doctors, scientists, like all of us are probably not even one degrees. We all know somebody. And it would have been fantastic for the country to know the stuff and make our own decisions. Well, that's so true. But, you know, as we also know, ignorance and fear are, are bedfellows. Yeah. They go together like peanut butter and jam. You know, it just proves the adage, you know, the truth, the truth wins. Um, on the subject of vaccines, and this is an interesting point that actually came up in the trial. Hmm. You know, Pfizer never told, never told governments that, uh, that their vaccines would, redu- would reduce the risk of transmission and spread. The, 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 the only, the only uh, representation they made is that, um, that the vaccine would reduce the risk of serious health outcomes and death. To themselves. Well, if that's true, if, yes, but if that's true, if that's true for the vaccinated, then the vaccine is not, by definition, is not a vaccine. It's a therapeutic. Right. Okay. So a vaccine, by definition, is something that prevents you from getting uh, sick at all. So these are not vaccines. But what's really fascinating, and I think should be concerning to people, is that the way that the vaccines were presented uh, in Alberta and other places is, uh, in fact, when the vaccines were first rolled out in Alberta, which was in late December of 2020, Dr. Hinshaw said that they were 95% effective at preventing infection. Now, that was never true. The CEO of Pfizer just came out recently uh, and said that that was never true, that the vaccines do not prevent transmission or spread at all. That's not what they're designed to do. Wow. That's (laughs) So, you know, again, yeah, it is. But, you know, if they had come out and told the truth, and said that, you know, the vaccines only prevent you from getting seriously sick or dying. Um, it would have been impossible to justify uh, widespread vaccination, right? For example, to, to children, there was never a pandemic among children. In Alberta, we didn't have a single person under the age of 19 die from, from COVID. And in fact, under the age of 60, the numbers are vanishingly low. So with all that you're seeing and have seen, and it's fascinating talking to you, Leighton, but like 
if all the money, like just take all this money uh, that has been wasted to do things that don't work, then to look after people without jobs, then et cetera, et cetera, just take all this money. It wouldn't have taken long after, or even a few months after this stuff began to break, where a wise leader would go, if we're going to look after the vulnerable, we could have built, you know, I mean, all kinds of things onto old folks' homes. We could have built hospitals everywhere. Uh, you know, rooms to protect the vulnerable who are out in the population and who are the sen mainly our senior citizens. We could have done all sorts of things to protect these vulnerable people, which is very real, and, and really maximized survivors rather than to, to shut down economies and to throw money everywhere else. With the amount of money, whatever that amount is, would you agree with that? And just as a person, not as an actor, as a person, when you look mm -hmm. at this, this whole situation. Yes. And in fact, that wise leader exists. His name's Ron DeSantis. What you just described is exactly what, what he did. And, and the reason uh, when you look at Florida and you look at their leadership there, uh, the reason why they are, uh, why the situation in, say, Florida is different than Alberta is that um, for example, when I put this, uh, this hierarchy of values to Dr. Hinshaw, and I said to Dr. Hinshaw, you know, your government put the healthcare system ahead of people. It put, you know, protection of the healthcare system above people's individual freedoms. And so you're correct, yeah. wise leadership, there's a paucity of wise leadership. Yeah. And um, there's a whole argument that can be made that that's precisely why this is occurring. And just one more aside, perhaps the greatest societal impact of the pandemic has been the redistribution of wealth and political power from the, from the working class or the middle class in Canada and the United States to the political class and the uber-rich. Okay? Wow. And immense, immense fortunes have, have been made over COVID-19. But when you look at, for example, vaccine mandates, vaccine mandates do not impact the street people. They do not impact the poor. They do not really impact the elderly. They certainly don't impact the political class or the uber elite. They impact the working class. Yeah. And so the impact wow. of vaccine mandates, for example, has been to disentitle the working class, and I think by design, because if you look historically in every, in every society where the working class has been disenfranchised economically, you also see a corresponding loss of uh, political power in that middle class. Right now, in places like Canada, Canada the United States, the working class, middle class people, we have a lot of political power because we elect leaders. Mm -hmm. Well, that's changing. That is changing. Um, and in societies where you do not have a functioning middle class that can hold and maintain personal property, they lose all their political might. And I believe that is a Huge. big part of the Huge. agenda, the real agenda of COVID-19. Now, that's, that's, that's my considered opinion yep. based on what, what I'm seeing. But, mm -hmm. I mean, that's the opinion of someone who has been steeped in this stuff uh, for two years. And I'm also a student of 
of, of history. Yeah. And so that's, that's my view. Um, and that is what, that is what people in the West really have to uh, face. I think coming out of COVID, um, there, there are two very important things that people in Canada and, and in the United States really need to focus on. Number one is we have to remove forever. We must insist that all emergency powers in government are taken away. Um, we have seen how dangerous these are. Yep. We have seen the harm that they can do. They're anti-democratic. Um, they're dangerous to, to the public. And governments don't need them. They don't need them. There was no emergency power that was required in 1939 when the Canadian Parliament got together and declared war on Germany. There was no emergency power that was necessary in 1941 when Congress got together and declared uh, war against Japan after Pearl Harbor. Governments don't need these emergency powers. Hmm. They can get together, they can meet in the normal course of things, and they can have meetings, they can have votes, uh, democratic votes. These emergency powers circumvent and defeat all of the protections, the constitutional protections that are in place. And, and so there should never be a situation where one person, whether it's a president, a prime minister, or chief medical officer of health, can issue an order that becomes law that cannot be debated, uh, that cannot be criticized, uh, that cannot be looked at, and, and, and is not, that, that law is not made according to the constitution of the land. So that's one thing that I think we all have to be vigilant about, we have to insist upon, is the removal of these emergency powers. The other thing in Canada that I think is really important, especially federally, is we have to insist that our legislatures um, set limits upon public spending. And so if you take, for example, Ottawa, if you go back to March 2020, if the, if the Trudeau government did not have, or at least if it didn't think it had inexhaustible spending powers, um, imagine how much more wise, how much more rational they would have had to been had to have been in dealing with the situation of COVID-19, whatever it presented. Instead, what they did is they just threw money at the problem. Yeah. And like, like most problems, uh, unfortunately, money, money rarely solves it does. most problems. Yeah. Uh, in fact, in a lot of times, it makes them worse. And now, now in Canada, we are dealing with you know, the aftermath of of these disastrous policies which if if we had if we had uh, spending limits on parliament uh, for example the, the federal government just came out with with a with a budget um which our media is telling us is is very rational and sensible but i mean it, it's it's tens of billions of dollars of uh, of of, de- of money that we don't have of, of increased debt so we've gotten used to this idea that the government can spend more money then it's collected from the citizens. And, and uh, you know, the idea of a balanced budget is gone. And that, to me, is a recipe for disaster. It's yes. leading to massive inflation, um, you know, economic instability. And, uh, and regular Canadians um, are really facing incredible and, un- and avoidable challenges just to fill up their cars uh, to, so that they can... You know, get their kids off to school uh, and get to work. So those are a couple of things coming out of COVID that I would like to see. Yep. The, the third one and the really big one, and I think this is the greatest 
um, goal that we have in terms of prosecuting these litigations is we need to have a full public inquiry yes. into the exercise of government authority and how our governments dealt with the pandemic. We had a full we had a full public inquiry, for example, in relation to Indian residential schools, which impacted only a very small fraction of Canadians. Yep. But here we have a situation that affected every man, woman, and child in Canada, even impacted the unborn. Uh, and, and here, you know, in nowhere in Canada, in any province, in any city, anywhere, is there a public inquiry into the exercise of government authority about how they dealt with the pandemic. And I think this is a necessary forensic examination that we have to go through. I mean, even when it comes to the courts, like, it must be hard for a judge to move against a sitting government's decision for, you know, in, in, a, in, in a case. And I've heard people comment, I do not know whether it is true or not, um, that they're not in many times, that it's hard to get them to make a decision. Any comment on that? Or Well, it is, a, I mean, you make a great point. Historically, mm-hmm. uh, in the common law tradition, uh, judges understand that we're not a society that's ruled by judges, okay? Right. right? And so judges uh, are right to be deferential. However, um, there is a point at which, um, you know, that that has to that has to change, and I and I think that the threshold is when governments start to make laws that are inconsistent with the Constitution. Right. Then it's the role of the courts to uphold the Constitution. That's their job, and I still have faith that our courts are going to do that. It's just, um, you know, people need to understand that the courts, the law tends to trail a little bit about, a little bit behind society, a little bit, uh, I, I think of like lightning and thunder, you know, so if, if COVID-19 is the lightning, you know, the courts dealing with it is sort of like the thunder, it's like the echo. They come in behind and try and make sense right. of what's happened in the culture and sort it out and promulgate that into, in, into law. That's kind of how the common law tradition has worked. And so my expectation is that we're going to see some very rational uh, decisions. We're going to see the courts try and make sense of what happened during COVID-19. But to ask a judge in the middle of a quote-unquote pandemic uh, to, to, you know, second guess or armchair quarterback what a government is doing to deal with a health crisis, you know, that's asking asking a lot. Having said that, though, the one thing that troubles me in our system, it, it was the willingness of the courts to sort of take judicial notice of the existence of a pandemic. To me, uh, that's a that's a question to be determined by science. Right. And and so, if a government is passing laws that restrict individual freedom, for example, um, they should be required to produce hard scientific data to show that this is actually occurring. A court shouldn't shouldn't simply say to a government, okay, uh, you say there's a pandemic going on and that's why you're doing this. Um, we're gonna leave this alone for now and we're gonna give you time to come up with the proof and we'll deal with this later. It's all gonna come out in the wash. I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but that's kind of what's right. happened. Yep. You know, uh, and, and I don't think that that is, uh, I don't think that's the best way of, um, you know, of, of, of doing things. One thing I can say and I appreciate that I'm somewhat biased in this. 
Um, the Alberta government has not produced evidence to my satisfaction that any of its COVID restrictions uh, are justified in fact or law. Wow. I mean, I got one last question and then I'll, I'll sure. time is up, but is anything happening with travel? Like, is there anything happening in the courts? Can we see any relief right away? This ridiculous uh, stopping yeah, people question. who aren't vaccinated when the vaccinated aren't being helped anyway. It's punitive. There isn't as, as much of a rational explanation for that as there even is in the in the case of Dr. Hinshaw, where she's saying, you know, we're going to restrict your liberty uh, so that we can save everybody else from COVID. You know, um, that doesn't seem to exist in the context of mobility. So I think there's a much weaker Section 1 uh, argument, the Section 1 being the part of the charter which says that uh, government intrusion or violation of rights can be saved if it's in the public good. Uh, and I, in talking to Keith Wilson about this, that was part of the reason why they focused on Section 6 is because uh, the government has a very weak Section 1 argument. There really isn't a strong public policy argument to be made in favor of restricting people from travel. Uh, it seems to be a very transparently obvious way of penalizing people who refuse to be vaccinated yeah. um, in, a, in, a, in a punitive, almost vindictive way uh, to, you know, to pressure them into getting vaccinated so that they can escape their own country. And, you know, we should be very concerned historically about our government doing this yep. because when you look at, for example, East Germany, the old DDR, the Deutsche Demo the Democratic Republic, um, one of the first things they did in the early years after World War II, before their Berlin Wall went up in 1961, is gradually over time, they made it increasingly difficult for people to leave the country. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't want to argue the slippery slope, right. but the fact that we are the only nation in the world that has these restrictions um, should be something that is very, very concerning. To what about North Korea? Well, that's true. But even in North Korea, uh, they can get on planes and trains and ships. It's true they can't leave the country. But in North Korea, you can get on a train. Wow. Okay. Can't, yep. can't Canada. Wow. And of course, in North Korea, the, the, the restriction on travel is not framed in terms of COVID, is it? Right. It's a, no. you know, it's no. a deeper political. That's a pretty you know, powerful thing you just said. We're the only country in the world... Uh, that doesn't allow its people to get on trains, ships, planes, and travel within the country or out at the border. That is yeah. so wrong. And I think that's something people should be upset about massively and get behind and say something and do something. Yeah. In the second largest country in the world. Yeah. Thank you for being with us today. And and we need to talk again. And we'll, and we'll go through something and dive wow. in a little bit deeper. Yeah. But I've, I've really appreciated your time with us today. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the program. Return to Reason is supported by our fans. We are not handcuffed by advertisers or shareholders. The need for media with integrity is more important than ever. Consider becoming a partner and fueling the unheard truth by visiting returntoreason.tv.